Everyone, uh, and praise God that you all made it here safely. Look forward to continuing our um, study in the prophets, prophets, importance to us in our world. We're going to open in prayer. Friend, would you bow your heads with me? As we gather to study your word today, O oh God, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, awaken us, those even us who are wearing pajamas today. May we sense that you are alive in our midst, uh, rising us into your kingdom. May we uh, be uh, lifted up in your presence in this time. Lord, bless Debbie and guide her words and guide our discussions that they may be reflective of your kingdom here and now. In Jesus' name. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. So um, for any new faces, I just want to give us sort of a brief recap of where we were and, um, and a check-in because we made a commitment to one another last week. Um, in the first chapter of Daniel, we remember that we have a whole generation, the brightest and the best, who have been carried off into exile. And it, it is a cunning strategy for cultural um, engagement. The king is going to feed the people at his table, well, the young men, and he is going to equip them to become leaders in Babylon. And with that cultural assimilation, to make them as good as gold Babylonians. And so we have this young man named Daniel, young adult, somewhere, you know, in that. Um, statistical grouping of 18 to 25, who looks at all of this, who's made the several hundred mile journey, which was, by the way, made on foot, who has gotten through the disorientation, um, at least for the most part, of being there. And, and Daniel kind of is, well, the actual word for discernment means to sift. If you go to the root of it, it means to, to sift through and, and in that sifting. So think about those um, sort of screened pieces that the, you know, the gold diggers used to, and they'd sift, and the sand would fall through, and those great pieces of gold. Daniel's sifting for the gold, the gold of what is going to retain his core identity of who he is as a faithful man of God. And as Daniel looks at the spread, Daniel's going, uh-uh. That's just not going to work. And if you remember, um, with wisdom and tact, he says, okay, I can't eat from that table. And the guard, who is savvy and has been around the block a few times, says, well, I'm not going to lose my standing and credibility and my head, if you will, um, if you don't fare well with this fasting. And so they set a time. And at the end of that time, Daniel and his three friends are actually, quite frankly, looking better and having more energy than anyone else. We could go into conversations about GMOs, etc., but we're not going to do that right now. So last week, we talked about that short little verse, but Daniel resolved. Daniel, in that sifting, came to that place where he understood what he needed to be able to maintain his core identity in God. And we're going to see that that sifting continues as we live into today's chapter. But we all talked about um, the reality that prayer and fasting go together, that fasting without prayer is a bad form of dieting, and that for Daniel, that was the peace that was going to hold him in that relationship. Catherine very courageously shared that she was going to resolve to fast from worrying as she enters into her final semester of college. And Edith would be here this morning, but she's downstairs in the nursery. And, um, and I said, so how's it going? Do we have an update? Well, you know, anytime we begin to build an intentional discipline, we're going to get it and we're going to lose it. So I wanted to actually show us um, a little bit out of Duhigg's work, just a single slide, because I think this is really important. 
Um, for those of you who need another book to read, because it's just so great, Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habits, has actually become foundational um, to an understanding across disciplines as to how we build healthy habits, how we actually begin to um, just embed in the rhythm of our lives those habits that will help us to excel or not. And so what he um, said is that with every habit, there are three aspects to it. There's the cue or the trigger, the thing that reminds us that, um, oh, by golly, I've said I'm going to fast from worrying, or in my case, um, Sunday through Thursday from wine. <sighs> Why did I do that? And it's not even Lent. And then there's the routine. It's cold outside. The fire. We're sitting there. Well, what Duhigg says is you have to know what you're going to replace it with. You cannot just simply say you're going to stop doing something and think it's going to work. Which is why we have fasting and prayer for Daniel. Because Daniel knew that if he was going to fast for food, he had to actually take that time and intentionally um, engage with another habit. And so Daniel engaged with prayer. I engaged with canarinis. That is a term that comes from Spain, and it is hot water with a lemon peel. <laughs> How exciting is that? Dave's making a face. But here's the reality. When we are intentional, whatever we're fasting from, um, with replacing that which we're letting go of with that which we want to be filled with, it actually, we, we have dramatically increased the chances. So as we live through Daniel, you, we'll begin to look at those cross-references into the New Testament. And we're going to find that Philippians 2 is a really significant text for Daniel um, because it follows the kenotic path. It is Paul's hymn um, where Christ emptied himself that he might be filled with the glory of God. How are we going to sift and discern of what do we need to be emptied that we might come to bear the face of Christ more fully, that we might come to embody Christ. Daniel's path is a kenotic path. It is a path of emptying. And, and so what we see is there are going to be these cues throughout the book of Daniel in which he is going to remain steadfast to a routine or what in the church through the centuries we've called a rule or a rhythm of life that helps him to retain his core identity in God, to allow his character day by day to be transformed so that it becomes more godly, to live out his call in the intersection of passion and strength and need of the community and thereby embody God to a community in exile. And that's the reward that comes from that. So, is there anybody that resolved last week to just give a little test of fasting from one thing um, who might like to report in the good, the bad, and the ugly. I don't know. Anyway, oh, there it is. I said I would get uh, fast from sugar, and I'm very proud to announce that I only had one oatmeal cookie this week. <laughs> one. That's good for me. And he did, did it from tea, hot tea. Did you have any tea? No. And, and I did pray. Every time I'd look at something sweet, I'd say, please, God, don't let me eat that. <laughs> please don't quit making oatmeal was her prayer. <laughs>
But how did it work with um, the prayer? I mean, you know, what did you find as you kind of yielded that moment from the oatmeal cookie or the other forms of sugar to prayer? What was your experience of that? I kept thinking, you know, God, I can do anything. And then I kept thinking of you, and I was like, I can do this. I can do this. And God helped me through it. Interesting. And today, part of what we're going to look at with today's passage is um, the importance of spiritual friendship and the power of that. Anybody else? Courtney. Well, for the rest of us, I'll share a little failure story. Well, a partial failure. <laughs> uh, when you said last week, okay, share in your groups, and I thought, well, I don't really want to do this, <laughs> but we have to share in our groups, so I guess I have to think of something, and then if I tell a group, then I have to do it. So I was a little bit of an unwilling participant, I'll admit. Um, so I was trying to fast from uh, if the kids are really going crazy, like in the middle of the day, during the day I go and like, I don't know, my mom gave me like a little thing of Andy's candies. So I'll go in the kitchen and just like eat a chocolate or just whatever my little good snack is. So I decided I was going to fast from my little snacks during the day. And I was really hungry. I thought I just did it because I wanted chocolate and I was annoyed, but I really get hungry in between meals. So it was hard to resist. So I didn't do a good job, but I would say maybe half of the time. I resisted, but it was good because I still walked to the kitchen and then remembered that I was supposed to fast from it. And it was good because those times I did pray and whatever I was being pushed over the edge with, I just kind of took a moment to regroup without the chocolate and prayed. And so although it was unsuccessful, I think overall it was good and drew my attention more to the need to regroup from God and not from chocolate. Um, But what Duhigg says is sometimes we think it's as simple as, you know, this is my stress point and the way I'm doing it. But actually, my body's also saying it needs some more food. Um, And then to discern in the midst of that, then what? You know, do we have a Chobani, zero fat, 14 grams of protein? Okay, so I'm giving all my secrets away. Anybody else? Oh, Jack. (laughs) Uh, this is my first cup of coffee in a week, and it 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 didn't work. <laughs> I didn't miss the coffee, and I didn't pray more. <laughs> That's reality. And it has been said that confession is good for the soul. <laughs> okay, did you want to share anything? Um, I decided to fast from Facebook, <laughs> and and in place of it, I do that all in my phone. I also have my Bible app, so anytime I would go to pull up Facebook, I'd be like, wait, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, and pull up my Bible app, and it was, um, I didn't do it as much after the first days, but when I would do it, it was a refreshing thing, and Facebook isn't always refreshing, even though it's addictive. So, (laughs) I did use Facebook to look up, like, websites when people didn't have websites, but I counted that as getting information for something I needed and not just scrolling mindlessly through Facebook. (laughs) Excellent. Well, um, so folks, Just because we're moving into Daniel 2 doesn't mean that we can't explore those opportunities of prayer and fasting. Um, And we'll be surprised if we kind of yield it to God with, all right, God, what might I consider fasting from? God might actually begin to pull us into things we're not so sure we want to yield yet. Um, But that I leave for your relationship with God, and the two of you can discuss it, or at least you can think you can. So we're going to move on today um, to Daniel 2. And in this chapter, um, we begin with the king walking around his palace grounds. And um, 
You know, the king has everything. I mean everything that the king could want. Power, privilege, prosperity. Yet the king lacks the one thing that he desires most. Peace, well-being, wholeness. The word used is shalom. He is a man that is troubled by dreams, dreams that not only challenge his worldview, but his security. It is eerie how one could read into this. His response and his disquiet is to summon his chief magicians and his sorcerers. He wants them to fix the situation through their interpretation. Some might actually say through the spinning of the truth, tell him whatever he wants to hear um, so that he'll be at peace. But here's the reality. They could not. The dreams continued. The disquiet deepens. And in their words, they say what the king asks is too difficult. Nobody can reveal what the king is dreaming except the gods, and they do not live among men. As a result of their inability to describe and interpret, because that was the other piece, he wasn't going to tell them his dream. No, no. If you are a chief um, magician, then you should be able to tell me what I dreamed, right? And then interpret it, please. Well, they couldn't do it. And it didn't matter how hard they tried. And so the king was a little, oh, may I use the P word? Pissed. Another theological term. And said, enough of you. I'm going to sentence all of you to death because I can. I'm the king. What I love about this is in um, the inability of the chief magicians and in the response of the king, we are afforded an opportunity for God's sovereignty to be made known. So with that, our traveling mic man will be around and we're going to read verses 2, 1 through 13. And you might want to just pass it, you know, read a pericope, a paragraph, and pass it on to the next person. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchantresses, saucers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. The king answered the Chaldeans, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruin. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and a great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servant and the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you have been bargaining for some time, inasmuch as you have seen the command from me is firm. That you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me, till the situation is changed. Therefore tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me nation. The Chaldeans answered the king, There is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or any or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is, is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. Dwelling is not with mortals. Through verse 13, is that right, uh -huh. Debbie? 
Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went forth that the wise men were to be slain, and they sought Daniel and his companions to slay them. Can you feel the drama building? Oh my goodness, we've got a mess here, an absolute mess. And so I want you to, to kind of sense it. If, if one, now the king is sent for his own people to begin with, but his own people actually are not able to provide him with the answer he wants. At the same time, Daniel and his friends, remember they've just graduated from this elite training program, even though they managed to fast from the king's table. And, um, and so they're included in that group. They're, they're the new young recruits, and well, it doesn't matter whether they've done something or not done something, they're going to actually um, experience the, the same, um, same cost as the king's men. So here's Daniel's response. Listen carefully. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him, and this is really important, with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. The pressure is on. Now first, I want us to think about it for a moment. Think about how these young men have been pulled out of their community, moved hundreds of miles, put into Babylon. They've been put in this training program, this cunning strategy for them to lose their identity. They have sifted through. They have figured out that they have got to remain true to core practices that will help them to remember who and whose they are. Now, if ever there was an opportunity for an amygdala hijack, this was it. You know that reptilian part of the brain that is the only fully farmed part of the brain at birth. It is the fight or flight part of the brain. And yet here is this young man who says, what's going on? <laughs> and remains calm. And with wisdom and tact gets the, the story of what's going on and then has the courage, a matter of a heart, cur, to ask the king's commander-in-chief to take him to the king and to say, could we have a stay? Before you act on this, will you give me time with my friends to interpret this dream for you? The word for tact is an Aramaic word which means to taste, to form an opinion of. Daniel is, is kind of taking it all in. And as a result of that prayer and fasting, he has the space within himself to go, you know, the chief magicians are right. The only one who can interpret this for the king is God. How many of you have ever actually fasted from food for an extended period of time? There is this beautiful um, place that you arrive at where you actually have a greater clarity. It's just this stunning, you, you kind of get everything out of your system and, and there's an energy and a clarity. And my sense is, with um, Daniel and his friends, that uh, they have retained both uh, those core practices, and they have been diligent to them to the point where he's not hooked. He's not in an amygdala hijack. He's able in calmness, which, by the way, also catches. So anxiety catches, so does calm, to bear calm to the king, to grant time to go to God. So if somebody would actually read um, what is called Daniel's Psalm, so verses 17 through 23. 
17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, companions, and told them to seek mercy of the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and mysterious things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For thou hast given me wisdom and strength, and hast now made known to me what we asked of thee. For thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Imagine that. Hmm. So, here's the source of Daniel's wisdom, beloved. It's not born of books or skill. It's not a concept to be learned or a task to be accomplished if we just work harder. Rather, Daniel's modeling to us that, that true wisdom is born out of a relationship with God lived out in prayer. As the Apostle Paul is to later ask, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of this world foolish? So here we are. We're going to go to some table time. We have the man of God who has lost everything, his home, his family, his freedom, yet has the peace that the king lacks, even in the face of death. His peace, his shalom, of course, is a gift from God, and it is a gift that is born of surrender and placing trust in God even when nothing makes sense, even in the midst of crisis. And he speaks with wisdom and tact to his would-be executioner. Having accomplished the stay of enforcement, Daniel goes to prayer with the support of his three friends. So in your chapter outline, you have some questions for reflection. And I'd like us to, um, as well as one to look up, Colossians 4, 6, so I'd like to um, take some table time and just reflect on those first four questions. How does Daniel approach Arioch showing wisdom and tact? Now I want you to think about the contrast between Trevor Noah and Steve Colbert and how Daniel approached the king with wisdom and tact. And in that approach... In today's world, where, frankly, we're so tired because each day brings something new, what does it mean for us to taste, to form an opinion based on its flavor, and to then respond in a proactive and faithful way? That's not the question, but I'm giving it to you now. So let's just take about oh, a couple of minutes. So the mic is going to come round. How? How? Concretely, how does Daniel approach Arioch with wisdom and tact? Ooh, leading with questions. <laughs> well, look at this table here. Hmm. Got something like no, I don't. Okay. Um, anything <laughs> that you want to add to that? 
Do you know my favorite poet, um, John Sicardi? Well, he's not my favorite poet, but I really like this wisdom from him. John Sicardi said, a good question is not a bolt to be tightened into place, but a seed to be planted toward the greening of the landscape of faith. So it wasn't just simply that he led with question. He led with this open question. Not just kind of, I'm going to box you in, that this isn't fair. What makes this fair? Well, what's actually happening? Could you tell me? So, what else do we, um, can we surmise, even from that little verse? Well, he certainly managed the stay of enforcement, didn't he, Nancy? Because really what the king wanted was peace. He wanted the dream interpreted. And, you know, so the, the king killing off of everybody was, I mean, that, now that was an amygdala hijack. <laughs> you know, my sense is that Daniel actually had compassion. Daniel, this wasn't a cunning, I'm going to catch the king in this vulnerable moment and trip him up, but, but Daniel actually had compassion. Daniel also knew that his life was on the line. Yeah. And, you know, so you look at, in verse 18, pleading to ask, to pray for, with a sense of urgency. How often do we approach God with that same sense of urgency? I think sometimes when we're in a crisis mode personally, we can get there. But what will it take for us to get there for our cities? For God's people? Because it wasn't just for his own life. It was for the life of everyone in this group of people. So in verses 20 through 23, Daniel's psalm, what aspect of God's character are emphasized? What do we learn about God in verses 20 through 23? So wisdom, supremacy, or sovereignty. God reveals. What would it mean, and, and, and I'm just asking you to ponder this in your own prayer life, to, to understand in your gut, not just intellectually, that God is indeed the source of wisdom, that God will reveal. How would that change not only our prayer lives, but the way in which we live out the rhythm of our days? I don't know about you all, but I'm the eldest of an eldest and an only. And if you know anything about family systems, it means I like to be in charge. And so, Dave is going to help. <laughs> what it means is that there is this inherent sense of responsibility as an eldest. And there are times when I feel responsible for things that God hasn't asked me to be responsible for. And sifting through discerning between what is good and what is faithful, what is needful, where is God in the midst of it, is a piece of what I think Daniel both models to us and invites us to. Daniel's psalm is beautiful. Now I want you to note, I gave you a short memory verse this week. I didn't give you the whole psalm, but if you really want to aspire, you could pray through Daniel's psalm this next week, and I guarantee those words are going to become inscribed upon your heart. And they are beautiful and wondrous words that inform our relationship with God. So let's pick up 
with our final, um, well, it's, it, chapter two is a, it's a long chapter. Um, so I'm going to be giving you all a homework assignment because I'm going to ask you actually to read through the rest of chapter two this week. Um, but I want to kind of give you a synopsis of what happens because uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time, as always. Um, when Daniel goes to prayer, it's important to note that he doesn't go alone. He goes with his three friends. This is not a solo journey. He fasted with his friends and prayed with them. And now he and the four are once again fasting and praying and going to God in a very particular way in prayer. For me, this second chapter of Daniel is a call to deepen not only my relationship with God through ongoing and intentional prayer, but it is an invitation and a charge to be attentive to how I nurture my relationship with God in prayer with others. How am I with soul friends, with prayer partners, entering into intentional prayer? I think it's amazing when we enter into a relationship with others in prayer, the amazing things that can happen. There's no question for all of you who are introverts in this room, there is a balance of time apart and time together. But how often do we tend to go to one extreme or the other? And especially in times of crisis, we need that support of one another in prayer. And we need to go into that time of prayer without um, already figuring out the outcome for God. We're really good at that part, too. So this next week, in addition to reading through, and, and we're going to come in a moment to do some um, reflection on truth-telling, um, I want you to... Um, to either reach out to the Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in your life, or to pray to God that God would place intentional prayer partners in your life. What might that look like? How might you engage in the practice of prayer together? What is the frequency of that, and what would the rhythm be? Because the reality is you don't just get up one morning and run a marathon. You actually prepare for it. In the same way, a life that is shaped by prayer intentionally through the gentler seasons and the tougher seasons is going to be ready for those marathon moments or those moments of crisis. And I think that um, we totally underestimate the power of prayer and how God can work in and through us in moments of national crisis. And there's no question that for the Israelites, they're in a moment of national crisis. I would vouch to say that we also are in a moment of national crisis. And so the invitation in the midst of this um, is to, to really nurture that discipline of prayer. So uh, part of what I want to um, encourage you to think about in disciplining that is not simply intercessory prayer, but prayer in which you just simply dwell with God. During Lent, we're going to be offered um, a wide variety of um, evening services. There's going to be Tizay. There's going to be Compline. There's going to be Evensong. I want to encourage you to perhaps consider a Lenten discipline of prayer to be attending those services and bringing your prayer friends with you, whether they are part of this church or not. Because as we allow our lives to be shaped by prayer and to simply receive, we're then able 
to also respond with greater intentionality. We're allowed to go till 12, I mean 10.15, right? 12.15. <laughs> now I want to say something about truth-telling. Um, it's not only wisdom and tact, it's knowing what to say. And we have a tendency these days of wanting to say everything. I think, in fact, I'm going to fast from Facebook this week. I would love an excuse not to have to go to Facebook. Isn't that interesting language? Not to have to go. That's scary. Lou Smeads, who taught at Fuller for many, many years, holy, holy man, um, wrote a book called Forgive and Forget, which is just a profound treatise on reconciliation. But he also had something to say about truth-telling. He said, a politician ought to speak the truth about public matters as he sees them. He does not have to tell us how he feels about his wife. A doctor ought to tell the truth as he understands it about my health. He does not need to tell me his views on universal health care. A minister ought to preach the truth as he sees it about the gospel and not tell us how he feels about the choir director. Telling the truth does not call us to be blabbermouths. Truthfulness is demanded from us about the things we ought to speak about or not at all. In a time and place and society where there is not one unpublished word, We have an opportunity as incarnational leaders to embody a form of truth-telling that speaks what needs to be spoken without adding any more editorial content. And when we think about those individuals who with wisdom and tact choose their words with care, we stop and we listen, don't we? We may disagree with them about aspects. In fact, I get concerned anytime somebody 100% agrees with anybody because then we've lost the wrestling of that, the sifting of where we ought to be. But there's something really powerful about that. Daniel did not go in and tell Nebuchadnezzar, look, I'm going to interpret this dream for you because I'm connected to the big guy upstairs and then I want you to let us go home. Daniel discerned what was going to be needful to bear peace in that moment into the king's life and restore enough balance to create safety for the people to live in community with one another. Truth-telling is a balancing act. Any therapist can tell you that. There are times when a therapist will know way ahead of a person that they're blocking something. Their patient is blocking something. That they're not ready to remember yet. We're a people who are shaped by memory. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus tells us every time we gather at the table. It becomes a challenging act of discerning what we remember so that we don't confuse nostalgia for the Israel, the Jerusalem, the city of Canton that we used to know with the state of exile in which God has placed us because quite frankly, God does some of God's best work when we are in a state of disequilibrium and willing to lean in and yield to God. And it takes courage, as was modeled to us by Daniel and those young men. Because in fact, next week, we're going to tip into the fiery furnace. How do we, through our moments of discipleship, not only equip ourselves, but equip others not to go around those moments, or rather these moments, but to be fully present in them.
that we might bear the presence of God in a profound way. That's part of the invitation of truth-telling. In this next week, um, again, I'm hoping that you will either reconnect or deepen the intentionality of, of those prayer partners in your life. And maybe you'll think about what it would mean to nurture an awareness of when God invites you to speak through the prophetic voice. But as you do so, let us never ever forget that we need to prayerfully resolve what it is that we need to remain always tied to God in Christ and how we speak with wisdom and tact that which needs to be spoken, not that which only gets in the way. So as we finish up today, wonder if there are any um, questions or thoughts or insights. Because then I'm going to pray over you. Let us pray. Oh, Dave. I just, um, the notion of God revealing. Sorry. This notion of God revealing, um, I guess I'm wondering how familiar are people in the room with that in terms of their own prayer life? Um, I tend to think that that's how I, how I enter prayer and that's why I enter prayer. That probably limits my prayer life, but I'm just wondering if anybody else has that experience or, or goes into prayer for, I hate, to put, I hate to say the word, for answers, but um, nevertheless for some sense of guidance or revelation or word. I've learned trust the smallest voice I hear. Hmm. When it's the big voice, it's usually me. When it's the small voice, it's usually God. Anyone else? I thought, I had this thought just for a second, you know, when did Jesus know God? That question's been asked before, and I think Didn't Daniel have to take a leap here to interpret a dream for the king? When did he know it was the voice of God? Even though he had wisdom intact, did he realize he had that? Do I realize I that? I think that goes into Dave's question. That's part of my response, I, I think. Well, which actually, I mean, have you ever found yourself saying something that you didn't intend to say, and yet you know that you have been moved by the Spirit. Where did that come from? Right. I mean, there are the things you didn't say where you wished you could pull them back, but there are times where, um, you know, God is putting you in a place. What's interesting to me um, in terms of looking at the formational journey of Jesus is that we know um, that the pleasure of God can no longer be contained at the point of his baptism. In that place um, where I think of the horizontal and vertical axes, uh, you know, the gospel, that, you know, as he takes on the brokenness of our humanity, as he steps into the mess and the chaos and um, the pain and brokenness of it all, it's at that point that God's pleasure can no longer be contained. And we have that voice saying, this is my beloved son. And I wonder with, um, you know, there, Daniel is, you know, okay, you're coming to kill us, but could you tell me why? Um, you know, sort of, okay, you know, I trust God. And, and just to kind of reveal a little bit of the drama we're going to live into next week, what's fascinating to me is that the three youth, his friends, go into that fiery furnace not knowing whether God is going to, um, you know, pull them from it or not. 
whether they'll make it through or not. And they have very strong words for that. And my sense is that the same could have been said for Daniel. I don't know whether God's going to give us the interpretation, but at least give us time to go to God and see if that is God's will. Because sometimes, so to go back to the reveal question, it's interesting those times when it is profoundly true that God reveals. And other times where God goes, not yet. My time is not your time. Oh man, now let's go to God in prayer. Holy God, we thank you um, for the gift of your servant Daniel, for the model he provides, the invitation he extends. And we ask, um, as we continue into this journey, that we would, um, we would know what you would have us fast from, that we might be more attentive to our time apart with you, that you would deepen those prayer partner relationships that are already in existence and nurture new ones, and that you would reveal for each one of us an absolute sense of clarity as to those times when you are calling us to speak your truth into a troubled and broken world. To speak it not out of self-righteousness, not out of being right, but out of a deep love and compassion for your creation and your people, that together we might seek shalom. All this we pray in the name of the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.